0: But we thank God that He was pleased to look upon Christ and pardon us. This is what the Scriptures are all about. And so let's ask God for His help as we um, look to His Word this morning. Father, forgive us already for any ways that we feel strong and that we feel like we are able to do what You ask and to do what is required. So, Father, we embrace our weakness in this moment and ask for your help, that you would teach us from your word, that when we're done with this time, that our only hope and our only confidence would be in the Lord Jesus Christ. We trust you to do that in his name. Amen. Amen. So we are going to finish the book of Nahum. So you can go ahead and flip to chapter three. So it's been a, a good learning experience for me as a, as a preacher, as a pastor, just thinking about sermons and prepping and the way you'd plan them and, and things like that. So I'm thankful to, um, not, I mean, of course, I'm grateful to be your pastor and I'm grateful that I can learn and grow um, with you guys, uh, with your encouragement and love and prayers. And so um, as a brother in Christ and as your pastor, it means everything to me uh, to, to be up here and to do this, to hand you Christ, to hand over the good news. And so as we begin, I just want to just reiterate everything that we've been through as we go into this last chapter, just made by way to reiterate, almost as a way to catechize us, to if someone said, what in the world is the book of Nahum about? So remember the setting, right? As a result of Solomon's sin, the kingdom of Israel has been split into two kingdoms. And the northern tribes of Israel were progressing far worsely into more immorality and idolatry. And so the Lord in 722 B.C. allows Assyria to overtake the northern kingdom. This huge expanding empire, this savage empire full of blood and lies and plunder overtakes the northern kingdom. And now the southern kingdom of Judah is in the shadows of this giant nasty empire. And the big question is, are they going to conquer Judah too? So the problem is that God promised the Messiah would come from Judah. And so what would that mean if Judah is destroyed? What does it mean about this everlasting king that God promised would come from the line of David? Is God a liar? Is he real? If he is, is he in control or not? Is he just reacting to all these bad things? Well, as we sit here today trusting in that everlasting king, this book of Nahum is all about God's judgment upon Nineveh and his salvation of his people. And that encourages me as we look to this book. And so the hope of God's people, as we've already talked about through this worship service, is his judgment. The hope of God's people is oftentimes His judgment. And taken into account with the rest of the Bible, Nahum brings into focus the riches of God's goodness through this long declaration of His wrath against evil and His protection and His restoration of His own people. And so this restoration of God's people was not because of God's people's faithfulness. They wouldn't be in this situation in the first place had they been faithful in the covenant. So God's restoration of His people is about His faithfulness. So in the last three weeks, we've walked through the first seven verses of chapter 1 and we observed how God is good and because of that, He punishes evil. And while God is full of wrath for His enemies, He is jealous for His own people. And He is a refuge for them in times of trouble. And so we also considered how the vengeance of God towards Nineveh, actually shadowed this much greater vengeance that God has for all evil and all evildoers. And it's being united to Christ, the rock of ages, that God becomes a refuge for sinners. And so then we kept going and we observed how God's goodness goodness results in judgment and in faithfulness. How God is going to pursue Nineveh into darkness and His wrath is going to be so terrible That death and hell will seem like a comfort. Death and hell will seem like a place for comfort as God's wrath is chasing Nineveh. And He used, as we have already just admitted, He used Assyria to lovingly and sovereignly discipline this prideful Judah, this idolatrous Judah, into the place He wanted them. Which as we considered, not making a name for themselves, but only hoping in the Lord their God. And that's where God has Judah in this moment. Scared to death calling out to Him as their only hope. And because of His steadfast love for His people, He's going to eradicate the Assyrians and restore Judah. And so we looked at how this eradication of Assyria actually pointed to God's ultimate, unswerving commitment to bring from Judah the snake crusher, the Messiah who would crush sin and death and Satan and hell. And then we finally considered from our time in chapter 1 that God's judgment and destruction of Nineveh is a type that finds its partial fulfillment in Christ who was judged in a place of sinners. That's true, but it also finds its complete fulfillment when Christ returns to bring new Jerusalem to earth and sin and Satan and hell and death will be completely eradicated, and we will be with God forever. And then we moved last week to chapter 2. And we looked at this vivid description that Nahum gives, essentially this play-by-play of what destruction is going to look like of Nineveh. And we reflected how, if God is against you, you're finished. We saw that God has many names, and Nahum described him as the scatterer. Now how He destroys His enemies. He scatters them into darkness. But in Christ Jesus, the scatterer becomes the gatherer of His people. The life, the cross, the resurrection of Christ means that God will never forsake us. He will never forget us. And He will never finish us. The Good Shepherd has gathered us into the fold. And it's actually God's design we finished last week. It's God's design that we live in utter dependence upon Christ, not our own efforts. And so this morning, we arrive in chapter three. And so I've broken chapter three into uh, four sections. And so we're just going to work through the text in those four sections. And then at certain points, we're just going to stop and reflect. And I'll make it very clear that we're stopping and we're going to meditate on some things. So if you're in Nahum chapter three, I'm going to read for us starting in verse 1. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face and I will make the nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes, that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart at sea, and water her wall? Or Cush was her strength. Egypt too, and that without limit. But the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of the land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for seed. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will be fire to deba- there will be fire devour you. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like locusts. Multiply yourselves like the locusts. Multiply like grasshoppers. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spread its wings and flies away. The princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts, settling on the fences in the day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Praise be to God for His Word. And again, after reading stuff like that, we're always like, and what are we praising Him for? But notice with me in the first four verses, the sins of Nineveh. In the first four verses, Nahum now describes the sins of Nineveh. I've kind of talked about it up to this point, but Nahum's not said specifically. Although there are plenty of contextualized words that give us these hints. But he says, Woe to the bloody city. The city is full of murder. Next, it's full of lies. And it's full of plunder. There's no end to the prey. There is not a single person. There's not a single child, a single woman, a single family that won't be killed if they get in the way of Assyria. There's not a single person they would not lie to to get what they want. Everyone they come in contact with essentially loses everything they have. There is no end to what they will not do. There's no end to what they will do. Plundering. No end to their prey. There's no morality. It's bloodthirsty. It's dripping with blood. And then, verse 2 and 3, it's almost like when you're watching a movie trailer of maybe like a thriller uh, and, and you kind of see the movie and then it, it'll flash results, like it'll foreshadow basically this nice battle or the results of all those things that they're doing. Well, this is kind of what verse two and three are. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse, the bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword, glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. This is a flash of what Babylon does. This army that God is using to kill Nineveh. Look at um, chapter 2, verse 4. The, the chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. Remember that? We talked about this last week. It's almost like the, this army comes in and it's like they've been sent from heaven. Cracks of lightning and whips of thunder. This city, woe to this murderous, deceitful, Savage city. And he flashes to what's going to happen to them. Remember, God's going to destroy you. And then verse 4 is the, the, the fourth sin. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays the nations with their whorings, and the people with their charms. And so really this verse is, sure, it's mentioning prostitutions, And but when you see those graceful and of deadly charms, What is being described here is how Nineveh will talk any nation into being on their side, or any nation into being in love with Nineveh. And this deadly charms is really referring to witchcraft or idolatry. It's just this this seductive, deceitful way that Nineveh has. If you're not just going to join on board through this deceitfulness, then they'll just kill you or take whatever you got. But this is just referring to this murderous city is full of deceit and plunder in the way they just prostitute uh, around to just grow their empire. With manipulation and with witchcraft. And so this is why, if you remember uh, in the first sermon that many have described Nineveh as the war of man against his fellow man and Babylon as the war of man against God. This, these sins, is what has caused God to say, I am against you. And so in verses 5-7, through if you'll look with me, these are some very uncomfortable words from God towards Nineveh. He says, I am against you. I will lift up your skirts over your face and I will make the nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I'll throw filth on you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who look at you are going to shrink back, and they're going to say, "Wasted is Nineveh." There's going to be no one that comforts her. And so this imagery here of God saying that He's going to lift up their skirts and show the world their nakedness is not some type of of sexual violence, and it's not any type of um, of any type of thing like that. You know, in these pagan nations, ironically, you know. Known for sexual immorality and prostitutions, what they would actually do, an ethical norm, would be is that they would bring a prostitute or someone who's committed adultery out into public and make them naked, tie their clothes over their head, and throw animal filth on them, right? To just say how bad this is and to throw shame on them, to make them lower than animals, essentially. And so God is almost saying, I'm gonna do this to you, like we read from Revelation, with what you've done, I will repay. And so the glories of this great empire, they claimed to be so glorious and so magnificent, and they looked so mighty and so healthy, so powerful, they would be stripped naked, and the nations would see what they really are. A shameful disgrace. And then moving forward, looking at 8 verses 8 through 11, we're going to notice this rhetorical question from Nahum. He asks them, are you better than Thebes, right? And then he mentions these other places. See, Thebes was this you know, mighty Egyptian city, and it was on the Nile, surrounded by water. So, of course, if you're a city and you're surrounded by water, you're essentially impenetrable. Because imagine if you have all your, your archmen, archery men on the top of all your towers, right? And the, the army comes, and I guess they're just going to swim across, or they're going to try to have a boat how easy it would be to destroy a boat or sink a boat or just kill people as they're trying to just make their way across the water to get to your castle, right? So having all this water, they seemed impenetrable if you had a mighty, mighty army to protect you. And then not only that, but these places that he labels, they were all to the north, south, east, and west, and they were all full of these extensive resources, and, and they were powerful places and, and full of wealth. And so Thebes, almost impenetrable and surrounded by cities who could help that were full of resources, went into exile. They could not withstand the judgment of God. And so he asked, are you mightier than Thebes? Than are you mightier than them? And so 11, he says, no, you also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek refuge from the enemy. And that word drunken is the same word used by Jeremiah a lot. And it refers to drinking the cup of wrath, drinking the cup of judgment. If you want to write a reference down, it's Jeremiah 25, 27. That he forces his enemies to drink judgment. And so he says, Nineveh, you're not better than them. You're going to be forced to drink God's judgment, and nothing can withstand God's judgment. It says that, When they drink God's judgment, they're going to be drunken. They're going to stumble around and seek a refuge. And no refuge will be found. So, up to this point, God's going to lift Nineveh's clothing. He's going to expose her nakedness in order that the nations would see her what? Her shame. The nations that once had relationships with Nineveh or were compelled to join in with her empire would now see that she's abominable and that she never actually meant good for anybody. All would flee from Nineveh. And so in saving his people, God would make a spectacle of their enemies to all the nations, that they would see the outcome of this kind of idolatrous, vile behavior. And it wasn't because Judah was faithful. According to the covenant, right? If Judah would have been faithful, they would have never needed to be disciplined by God because of the goodness of God, to be faithful to His promise to make all things right for the jealousy of His people that He disciplines Judah and He saves them from complete ruin. And so therefore, God causes Nineveh to drink the cup of His judgment and stumble around seeking a refuge in all of her fortresses, but not one of them would keep her safe from destruction. So now, let's take a moment and to think about all that's happened. Let's meditate on a few things. Because in a prophetic book that's all about judgment, I don't think it's a coincidence that language like nakedness and shame and refuge is used. So let's med- meditate upon nakedness and shame and refuge. This imagery is actually used in almost all the prophets. Specifically, Jeremiah in thirteen, in chapter 13, he speaks of Babylon. If you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? It is for the greatness of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted up and you suffer violence really same reference just a few pages later in your Bible you'll see it in Habakkuk chapter 2 he says woe to him who makes his neighbors drink you pour out your wrath and make them drink in order to gaze at their nakedness but you will have your fill of shame instead of glory drink yourself and show your uncircumcision the cup and the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. Nakedness has this strange connection with shame and with guilt. Think about a few weeks ago when we went through Noah, after he gets off the ark and he gets absolutely black out, sloppy drunk and falls asleep naked in his tent, and Ham comes up and his what? He sees his nakedness. And he goes and tells on his brothers. His brothers, of course, are mad at what he had done and they walk backwards into Noah's tent and cover him up. And when Noah wakes up, he's angry. Why? Because Ham looked upon his nakedness. It was wrong to look upon another person's nakedness and it was bad to be looked upon naked. But what, what is, what's the deal here? Well, Of course, we instantly are we're making our way back to Adam and Eve. Think about it. Genesis chapter 2. You don't have to turn there can just listen. I'm not going to read that many verses, but Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall, on, fall upon man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So they were naked, and they were not ashamed. And then of course, he gives them the garden, he tells them not to eat this covenant of works. They eat Adam or Eve is deceived by the serpent, and Adam eats as well. And the Lord God comes, right? Starting in in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking into the garden in the cool of chapter 3. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to them, Where are you? And he said, I have heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Why was he afraid? I mean, every time he fellowshiped with God, from the beginning, he was created naked. And every time he fellowship with God, he was naked. So why was he afraid? Well, apparently, their confession of their nakedness is connected to their awareness of sin. They had done wrong. And instantly, they were naked and ashamed, and they covered themselves up from each other first. And then they hear God coming in the cool of the morning, and they flee from God and run from God. And this is what we've been doing since the fall. Trying to hide ourselves from God, and we make coverings for ourselves. But we can't hide from God. And our coverings aren't a fix. They won't save us from His judgment. And so notice what God does, though, later in Genesis. When He enters the garden and He finds Adam and Eve, and of course, he sees it and they're, they're embarrassed and they're scared because they're naked and they're afraid. And after pronouncing judgment on them and cursing the serpent. What does he do? The first act of redemption, he covers their nakedness with animal skins. Church, this is what atonement is. It's a covering. It's a covering. And that covering points to Christ Jesus, the second Adam, who came to endure temptation, to fulfill the law in every way that the first Adam failed. And He fulfilled all righteousness. The Lord Jesus embraced our weakness. The righteous was made to be sin on our behalf. God laid our crimes on Him in laying aside all glory the lord jesus was stripped naked he was shamed he was cursed and he was pierced for our transgression and he was crushed for our sins and the strike which killed him which killed the messiah brought us peace and therefore brother and sister on account of christ you are righteous and you are forgiven because the lord jesus has i mean because god has covered you in Christ. He has covered you with Christ. You see, the unbeliever, Nineveh, all of those who don't trust in the Messiah, they say, God, don't look at me. Now, Nineveh seems big and bad and mighty. Right? And they said, who, who, who has an equal? No one has an equal with Nineveh. But when God's destruction is coming upon them, this is what they're screaming. Oh, God, don't look at us. Don't show our nakedness because we are shameful. But the believer, God's chosen people like Judah, all of those who trust in God's Messiah, we say with David, search me, O God, and know me. Lead me in the way everlasting. But be honest. How many of us are ashamed to pray like that? we're a little scared to actually ask, oh God, search me, know me, lead me in the way everlasting. Because you're scared of the judgment of God. You're worried about the fact that you haven't done your best and so you know God doesn't want to hear it again. You begging for forgiveness and for grace and for help. That's straight from hell. The evil one would love nothing more than for you to think that you have to do stuff to be right with God. He would love nothing more than for you to live in fear, oppressed by your guilt, not remembering your baptism, and not letting yourself come to this table because of your efforts, scared to go to God. But you are recipients of God's tenderness. God will not humiliate you in your nakedness. He covered you in Christ. And so now His presence is a place you never have to be ashamed. And this gospel is the kindness of God. This gospel is the way you keep fighting sin and you keep loving each other. You think because you habitually sinned again with something that you've, you've asked for forgiveness again, you know better, you know how not to do it, and yet you'd still do it, and so no way I can go to God. That is not the gospel. Go to Him beg him for help he's never tired of hearing your cries he's covered you with christ never be ashamed in your sin in your stupidity in your foolishness in your questions in your doubt in your lack of faith in your unbelief go to god with confidence that he loves you and he hears you he's clothed you with christ he is pleased to hear your prayers he is pleased That you go to Him because you don't know where else to go. You have nowhere else to go. And this gospel is going to be proclaimed every Lord's Day from this pulpit. And may God protect CBC to be a people that always believe this gospel alone. And if you've convinced yourself that you're putting in effort and the effort that you're putting in is enough to feel confident before God, you've missed God's kindness altogether. You can't do nothing. You can't do a thing to make God like you. Because before the world began, He decided that you would be a recipient of His mercy and His faithfulness and that He would cover you in Christ. So you don't have to worry about trying to make God like you. It's good news. And if you think about it, you know, God gave His people the law, which was always a way for them to see their nakedness, to see their shame, to flee to God, to trust His promises, be a light to the nations pointing to Him. But what they do? They always sought to team up with the world and make a name for themselves. We go into the New Testament with them doing that, with God putting upon them reproach because they want to make a name for themselves they want to make themselves a big nation and so God disciplines and restores them over and over and over and over and over and then guess what the Messiah came and when he came his people hated him these people which he was faithful over and over and over to discipline and restore and to discipline and restore they hated him why because the people that God was faithful to throughout all the ages, His people, the Messiah came to them in the flesh and they didn't know Him. They hated Him because He came preaching the law. And it exposed them. They were naked. And they were ashamed. And they were trusting in their own righteousness. They were trusting in a false righteousness. And Christ said, trust in Me. He came stripping His people of false righteousness. We sit here today stripped of all righteousness that we could ever earn. Clothed in the majestic, righteous robe of Christ. Never have to be ashamed to go to God. So, Nahum is writing to show the world the consequences of doing what Nineveh has done. She's going to be stripped naked and her sin is going to be exposed. And anyone who Nineveh convinced to love her would see that she never intended anything for their good. Nineveh's empire was a heap of deceit. It was full of lies. It was full of murder. And it was only evil. She was exposed for all those sins. The the murder, the deceit, the plundering, the seductive witchcraft. And no one will grieve for her. Her oppressors are glad to see her destruction now that they see her shame. And no one on earth is available to comfort her. No one has sympathy for her. She runs to many of her mighty fortresses, Nineveh does, but none are of help. And this leads us to the final verses of chapter 3, starting in verse 12. He's going to call out all these fortresses that Nineveh would trust in. Verse 12 says, all your fortresses are like fig trees with ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. You're ripe with figs, but it's like when this army comes and shakes the tree, yes, you look pretty and you look nice, but as soon as destruction comes, all of those fortresses that are ripe fall right into the mouth of Babylon. So you run to your fortresses but if shaken they fall right into the mouth of the eater. Behold the first group he says of their fortress. Who are they going to look to? Their troops, their mighty army. But he says they're like women in your midst. This isn't a this isn't a sexism thing. This is about war and purity, brute might, strength. You're not going to want an army full of mothers. Not because you're you're weak or you have no value, but because I'm sure there's a, a city full of men who can carry heavier swords or who can carry heavier shields. And it's about pure strength. This isn't a, a knock, right? This is just saying that it's a, it's a way of saying that your army, they're weak. They can't help you. So you go to your troops, but they're weak. So if that offended anybody, I'm sorry I didn't mean to, but I think you, you follow what I'm saying here. With, uh, Yeah. So they go to their troops and they have no help. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. And fire has devoured your, devoured your bars. So your troops come to protect you, but there's no help. And then verse 14, Nahum kind of, again, sarcastically and tells them to uh, you know gather resources, draw your water, get ready, because it's going to be a long battle. And strengthen your forts, go get the clay, right, and the mortar and take hold of the brick so he's like so as they're you know beating down the walls you better get ready to rebuild them and probably should build more walls right it's all rhetorical they have no hope because he says this in verse 15 there will be fire to devour you the sword will cut you off and it will devour you like locusts so he's like hey get ready and and try to try to you know do something but it's going to be pointless matter of fact you know Multiply yourselves like the locusts. Multiply like grasshoppers. So, like you know, just multiply your strength. Try to get strong. Defend yourselves. And then verse 16, he says, the second group of the fortresses that Nineveh would go to, you increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. Right? So, of course, any huge empire is going to have an amazing commerce system. Right? They're going to have, so it's like they have more merchants as number of the stars. Money's not an issue. But he says that money won't help. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. They're so destroyed that bugs don't even have anything to eat on. The locusts have no reason to stay around. But so don't go to your money because you're going to be so destroyed that no, nothing is going to be wanting to be around Nineveh. The locusts will not stay there. And then verse 17, your princes. And so then he just basically talk, calls out their government. They're like grasshoppers. And your scribes like clouds of locusts. And the scribes here is talking about marshals. And these are like your government leaders who would be telling the leaders of the army what to do. So your princes, you know, your government, they're like grasshoppers and scribes, the clouds of locusts. And here's what locusts do. In the cool of the day, they come to, to eat and to, and to um, feast off the harvest. But as soon as the sun rises and their wings start to warm up, they're flying away. So as far as your government, Nahum says, no one is to be found. They've all, they've all dispersed and fly away. They are of no help. Soon as destruction came, all this mighty talk they had, they ran. And so he says in verse 18, your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Speaking of your nobles, right, that's why he says your nobles slumber. Your government, who should bring your people together, have dispersed. And now your people are like sheep on the side of a hill with no one to gather them. They're spread out over the mountains. O king of Assyria. They have no one to gather them. What are you going to do? And then 19, our last verse. Answers all of our questions, right? There's no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. This wound is going to be fatal. There's no recovering from this wound. And all who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. And he, like Jonah, they're the only two people who end their prophet, their prophecy with a rhetorical question. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Who hasn't come under your evil? And so now we just meditate one more time upon some, some things. And I want to start this off by saying, get ready to clap and rejoice. There had to be a title for this meditation is, get ready to clap and rejoice. So more than Nineveh or any other corrupt empire or nation, you know, there is not one thing in all creation that hasn't been ruined by the fall. What hasn't sin ruined? It's corrupted everything. And we all inherit the death of Adam because we would have chose death too. And we're born and we grow up in need. We're born and we grow up needing no help hating God or loving self. We do this naturally and willingly. And we still, even as believers in Christ, sin all the time. Sickness, pain, and hurt. It's the air we breathe. Death haunts all of us, even though it's not the final word because of Christ, it still haunts us. Satan prowls around to devour And He's at work in the sons of disobedience. Yet, God is not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers, says Psalm 5. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And when Christ returns, God is going to judge the world in righteousness. Psalm 96. And in Revelation 22, the Lord says, Behold, I'm coming soon, and I'm bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what He has done. Christ's return is judgment and its eternal wrath for all evil and for those who do not trust in Him. So unbeliever, trust in Christ. Call upon His name as Lord. Confess your hopelessness to please God, and your need for righteousness and forgiveness. God is merciful. And for all of God's children, those who only hope in Christ, His judgment becomes our great hope and our great delight as we herald the mercies of Christ to all people until that blessed day. Christ's resurrection and His ascensions means that He is returning to reclaim all of His own, to claim all of His own, And we will be united in a resurrection like His. Satan's doom is sure. Sin's doom is sure. Hell done with. Death no longer haunts us. It's all powerless against the plans of God because Christ didn't stay dead. And soon God is going to crush Satan under our feet at the return of Christ. Satan evildoers, all evil in the world will finally be destroyed in eternal judgment because vengeance is the Lord's. And He will not clear the guilty. We read Revelation 17 and 18, and then later on in 18, where He's talking about how God has judged this, this secular city, this Babylon. Verse 20 says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, For God has given judgment for you against her. God has judged all evil for us against evil. And this means that there is coming a day where you will no longer desire things that are evil. You will no longer struggle to love God. There's coming a day where we're no longer going to have to pray, God, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Because our faith will be sight. And we will be at the table of our King and things won't be bad anymore. And we will be home forever. And because of this, beloved, don't grow weary in doing good. Stay alert. Run from all the things that God said is bad. Take care of one another. For the day is coming when evil will be crushed and it will not rise up a second time. We will finally be saved, saved and all things will be made new. Man, it's awesome how the grace of God shines through these words of Nahum. And as God is unshakably committed to destroy evil, as He saves and protects those who take refuge and trust in Him. It's God's judgment of His own Son who stood in our place that we have hope. So let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we, we don't trust in our own strength. We put our trust in your saving name. Like Psalm 31 says, it's into your hands that we commit our spirits because you have redeemed us. And so we give all praise to you, Lord Jesus, for you have delivered our souls from death. And so we ask you to continue as we go to the table to teach us to fear, to love, and to trust in you above all things. Amen.